Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from Luke's gospel, beginning at verse 21. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, for all the joy in the Christmas story, and it's full of joy, unspeakable joy, there is nonetheless... To a careful reader of the gospel narratives here, a kind of foreboding, haunting presence in the various Christmas texts. There is the dark shadow of the cross hanging over this story from the beginning. A lot of the Advent readings have to do with the ministry of John the Baptist. And Luke's gospel links Jesus' birth and John's birth. Jesus' ministry and John's ministry. And that means Israel's not ready for Jesus. There has to be one to prepare the way of the Lord, to call Israel to repentance, to warn Israel of judgment. And you have John who goes before the Lord and is ferocious as a preacher. And this shadow is particularly vivid in the exile of the Holy Family to Egypt in the face of Herod's murderous plots. And Herod was maniacal. He later sends out death squads to kill all the children under two. And so Christmas is dangerous. This is something we don't often hear. Or think about it. It's dangerous because this baby is dangerous. 
And he's dangerous in two very closely related ways. First, he's a threat to the entrenched religious and political orders, to the Jewish establishment and to the Roman occupation. All the gospel texts make this clear. Mary herself says of her baby, even before he is born in her Magnificat, she says that he will topple the existing order. That he'll send the rich away empty-handed. And he will lift up the poor and fill the poor and the marginalized with good things. He, this baby, Mary says, essentially, will send Israel and eventually the world into convulsions. Jesus is an explosion in the middle of human history. And secondly, this baby's dangerous because he brings us face to face with the living God. The incarnation ushers in the last days. And that means that the birth of Jesus is both, both the hour of redemption and the hour of judgment. Both of them are at hand in this birth. And in turn, that means that we now all live in the hour of decision. No, Jesus lets no man, woman, or child off the hook. So to see this baby is to be confronted with the ultimate things. And so we need to take care, we need to be alert, that while we celebrate, we don't sentimentalize the story. There's a lot of sentimentalization of Christmas. A lot of it I like, don't get me wrong. It's charming. But we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing with this Christ, the actual Christ who appears in the gospel narratives? That's the big question about Christmas. Who is this baby? What am I doing with him? Because the Christ of the gospel narratives, remarkably, mysteriously, is both anointed with oil, the oil of joy, above all his companions. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that about Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? Read the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels. And then ask yourself this. Is that the most joyous man on the face of the earth? Because the claim of the New Testament is, yes, that's it. That's what joy is. And Jesus is full of joy. But he is at the same time, in those same gospel accounts, the man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And so, our text this morning makes clear, the text from Luke 2, that there is no light of the Incarnation. No consolation of Christmas without these sharp-edged shadows of the cross backlighting the scene. The cross throws its light backward in time upon the manger. So I want to make three points here. The, the obedience to the law. Simeon's song. Simeon's song and then Simeon's prophecy. So first, obedience to the law. 
Verse 21, Luke chapter 2, verse 21 says that Mary and Joseph had circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. They had him circumcised. They named him as the angel had commanded. A thing to note here that's very prominent in this text is Luke's insistence on the obedience of Jesus' parents here. He mentions acts of obedience to the law, to the Mosaic law. He mentions them in verse 21, 22, 23, 24, 27. And then he sort of summarizes it all in verse 39, right after our text, when he says, when they had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. So this parental obedience of Mary and Joseph concerns the fact that their son, as Paul puts it in today's New Testament lesson, their son was born of a woman, born under the law. I want to say a couple of things about Jesus' being born under the law. The first point to note here is, is circumcision. Jesus, the text says, was circumcised on the eighth day. This is the sign of the covenant, going all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 17. But what did circumcision symbolize? It symbolizes the sinfulness of the human race. Particularly, that sinfulness at its roots, at the place where it's propagated. And thus, the need for cleansing by by blood. And this is why the cry throughout the Old Testament in the prophets is, circumcise your hearts. Circumcision points to this interior need to cut away sin and the sinful nature. And so a circumcised person says, I stand in need of cleansing and sacrifice. But here we need to ask, why then was Jesus circumcised? He did not need cleansing. And here we see the first shadow of the cross. The cross is hanging over Jesus' life from the beginning, right at his circumcision. Even before that, in the steep descent that is the virgin birth. The point here is that he's going to fully, without reserve, stand in solidarity with us, with you. He will be numbered. It's as if God is the judge and we're in line and Jesus comes over and stands on your side of the line. Turns and faces God as the judge and says, count me with these sinners. I'll be numbered with them and I'll be numbered with them not just from the cross, but from my birth onward, from the very beginning. He doesn't get to play by any special rules. He is like every other Israelite born under the law. And like every other Israelite, he receives the knife of cutting. John Milton, in his poem, the poem's title is Upon the Circumcision. He wrote this, Alas, how soon our sin sore doth bring his infancy to seize. Our sin inflicts pain on Jesus even in his infancy. And finally, he's going to be cut off, circumcised, if you will, at the cross. Circumcision is the sacrament that points to Calvary. 
Secondly, notice in verse 23, the time comes for their purification according to the law of Moses. They bring them up to Jerusalem. They offer a sacrifice in verse 24 in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. The law required, the Mosaic law required that women who gave birth to a male child remain ceremonially unclean for 40 days. This seems to have something to do with the loss of blood in delivery. Blood is, which would be a type of death because life is in the blood. Or alternatively, it may mean that in giving birth to the sinful seed of Adam's race, the mother herself is made unclean. But you would think, you would think that in giving birth to this child, to this baby, Mary would not be made unclean. Yet that is not the case. He's born of a sinful mother in the midst of an unclean nation, in the midst of a nation in need of atonement and purification. He comes out of a long genealogy of sinners. This is why Luke starts his gospel and traces Jesus' birth all the way back to Adam. And so here we have another shadow of the cross that hangs over the story from the beginning. His birth is, in this respect, treated as every other male birth in Israel. It makes his mother unclean. That will take a lot of the zany sentimentalism out of your portrait of Christmas right there. This birth makes Mary unclean. And a purification offering needs to be made. And so Mary and Joseph, they offer two Doves or pigeons. These are not the regular offerings. These are the alternative offerings prescribed in the law for poor families. Because they were cheaper and they were easier to obtain. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you could bring some doves or pigeons. And so here again, there's another shadow. Jesus is born into poverty. Real poverty. Concrete Poverty, not just the poverty of his people in general, oppressed under the Romans, but among those people, he is with the marginalized. He who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be made rich. And so Jesus stands with us in all of our spiritual or other poverty. And he will be the sacrifice then, which purifies not only Mary, but all the faithful. Another reason Mary and Joseph come to Jerusalem is to present Jesus as their firstborn to the Lord. You can see this at the end of verse 22, to present him to the Lord. And then there's a little parenthetical verse 23, which kind of clarifies what's going on. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. This goes back to the Exodus. When by blood, God spared all the firstborn of Israel, but judged all the, all the firstborn of Egypt. And thereafter, the Lord said, the firstborn child is to be presented to the Lord and consecrated to him. And that's, what's, that's also going on in this text. 
But think about this. This very act entails the idea that the firstborn, representing the whole people, stands under the death penalty and can only be delivered by blood, the same blood that was sprinkled over the doorposts of Israel's house at the Exodus. In fact, the law says when the firstborn is presented into the temple, the firstborn needs to be redeemed. Numbers 18 says there's a redemption price for the firstborn, five shekels. And while Luke doesn't mention it, you can bet Mary and Joseph paid that redemption price because Luke tells us they did everything that the law required for this firstborn offering. Think about that. Again, the question arises, why does Jesus have to be redeemed with a price? And the answer is the same. He doesn't play by a special set of rules. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't pull the God card out when he gets in a jam. See, I've got this God card. I'd like, I'd like another route. He fully identifies with us in his humanity. He's God's only son, Mary's firstborn, and he identifies with us who need redemption, provided as a, at a price. This is another shadow of the cross. It's cast across the Christmas story right at the beginning. Complete, total solidarity with those who are under the law, with those who need redemption At a price. Redemption through blood. So that's obedience to the law. And that's the backdrop. The second thing here is Simeon's song. We're introduced to Simeon in verse 25. There's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. And we can see that he was waiting, the text says, for the consolation of Israel. It's a magnificent phrase. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is a man, Simeon is, who knew and who believed that famous passage from Isaiah 40, which says, comfort, console, comfort ye my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Simeon knew that Israel was in exile still. And that there was a promised Messiah who would gather and heal and comfort these languishing people of God. And this was a man who was yearning, the text says, longing with his whole being for this comfort. Simeon appears briefly in Luke's gospel. He disappears. We know nothing else about him. But I think we can say this pretty safely. To him first and foremost, applies what we will sing later in the magnificent Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. To Simeon applies the words Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Here's an aged man In the temple, longing, waiting, looking, yearning for the consolation of Israel. He's an image of how we ought to be waiting, longing, yearning, and looking for the ultimate consolation of the people of God in the appearance of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. 
And we can see the intimacy that Simeon has with God. The text says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Even as the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, the Holy Spirit rested on Simeon. And he received, in verse 26, a special revelation from the Spirit. In other words, God spoke specially, uniquely, personally, directly to Simeon. That he would not die. He would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. This is a magnificent promise that God is under no obligation to make. It's an extraordinarily tender scene. The aged Simeon will not die before his eyes, dimmed with age, look upon the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. It'll be decades Decades before Peter and the other disciples recognized Christ, this baby, as the Son of God. But here God gives that revelation in advance to Simeon. And so we're reminded in Simeon that even in the midst of Israel's distress, their alienation, their subjugation, their exile, God preserves a remnant. God always is preserving a godly remnant. Simeon, and later Anna in the same text here, represent that remnant, Anna the prophetess. So Simeon, led by the Spirit, just happens to come into the temple, just as Mary and Joseph are in there. And you can imagine, the text doesn't record it, but you can enter into the text. Somehow, he communicates to Mary and Joseph what he knows. He must have said something, because the next thing we learn is he takes the baby up in his arms. He goes and asks for the baby, and Mary gives it to him, gives Jesus into his arms. And he takes the baby, and the text says he blesses or praises God. He bursts out in a song. And that's the text that you see there in Luke, in the gospel. He says, Sovereign Lord. That's his vision of God, Sovereign Lord. As you have promised, meaning you've promised not only in the scriptures, but you've promised me privately, personally, you now dismiss your servant in peace. And I'm sure many of you know the Simeon song here is known to us as the Nunc Dimittis, right? Which is Latin for now you are dismissing. He is saying quite simply, now. I can die. God is dismissing him from his long, faithful life. Simeon, you are dismissed. He's like a night watchman, waiting, watching for the morning star. And once he sees it and holds him in his hands, he's relieved of his watch. We are all pupils of, in this school of yearning and consolation. And we are not relieved from our watch until we breathe our last. T.S. Eliot, in his poem, A Song for Simeon, puts it like this. My life is light, waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand. Let the infant, still unspeaking, An unspoken word. Grant Israel's consolation to one who has 80 years and no tomorrow.
Simeon has seen Jesus as the Lord's Christ and as the consolation of Israel. Life holds out no more consolation. And he says insightfully that he's also seen the Lord's salvation. Jesus doesn't simply bring salvation in verse 30. He is the Lord's salvation. And Simeon, and this is really penetrating. He's clearly a lifelong student of Holy Scripture. He declares that this salvation has a universal range. This is something that Jewish leaders could not get into their heads no matter how many times they they clashed with Jesus. Simeon sees that this salvation that he holds in his hands is for all peoples. You can see this universal vista open up in verse 31 and 32. Salvation is prepared, he says, in the sight of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people Israel. Simeon is deeply conversant with the Psalms and the prophets. This has always been the promise. This goes back to the call of Abraham. Abraham's seed is going to bless all the nations of the earth. It's the very purpose of Israel's existence. To bring forth one who will be the Savior, the glory not only of Israel, but of the world. In fact, the Old Testament lesson today from Isaiah also speaks of Israel's light and glory bursting forth to the nations. And we gathered here, those of us who are Gentiles anyway, we are the fruit of that light. We are the fruit of the Psalms and the prophets and the fulfillment of Simeon's song. Simeon's song is your song. It's your song. That's why you're sitting here. The third point then is his prophecy. So you have this light of consolation in his song. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's tender. But it's accompanied again quickly by a shadow. There's this alternation in the Christmas story. And in verse 34, Simeon blesses them. and He blesses Mary and Joseph, but he speaks to Mary. And he says to Mary, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Now this is not your typical baby shower greeting. Here we see that this child is the Word of God. He's a sharp two-edged sword. He pierces. He uncovers. Jesus Christ exposes men, strips, strips us bare, confronts us with our darkness, calls us to lose our lives to save them. And here Simeon says some are going to fall. They will stumble over this baby who is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Think about that. Those are the only two categories of people there are in the ancient world. Right? Greeks don't mean just members of the island. Greeks mean non-Jews. There are two classes of people, the New Testament says, Jews and Greeks. What do they think of this baby? Well, Jews think it's a stumbling block. You can't have a crucified Messiah. And Greeks think it's complete nonsense that God would become a man. That doesn't leave a lot of reasonable people saying, wow, isn't this baby Christmas story fantastic? And so Simeon 
in the midst of this wonderful consolation, he says, look, this baby is going to cause the falling and rising of many. And when those who fall, it'll be a dreadful fall. What he is saying is something like this. The light and the love of God incarnate will penetrate into our darkness and some will reject it. For some, the ministry of Jesus will be, as Paul puts it, a savor of death leading to death. Yet, Simeon says, some will be broken and humbled before the light and they'll cling to him who is the light. And they will rise and they will be raised up with Christ. And so Simeon's broader point here is that the anguish, that the horror of the cross, the full revelation of God's holy love is going to break out violently, Mary, across your baby's life. People are going to react to this baby in intense ways. And the shadow of that destiny, he tells his mother, hangs on him, rests on him from the beginning, even from his circumcision. I know I've cited it before because I'm very fond of Calvin saying, Calvin says from the moment, he says from the very moment, he took the form of a servant. From the very moment he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price for our liberation. That's what Milton means when he says how quickly our sin brought pain to the infant. So he is for some, Simeon is saying, judgment. For others, consolation. But for all, he is the face of God's holy love looking into the abyss of the human condition. And this cannot be otherwise, Simeon says. Simeon says he is appointed in the text, destined for this. And look at the end of verse 34. He says, Jesus is a sign that will be spoken against. Some texts, some passages translate this as, uh, some translations say, a sign of contradiction. In other words, a sign that will constantly be contradicted, that will be spoken against. The accent here is on opposition. Again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a birth greeting, Right? And at the heart of the birth greeting is, your child is the salvation of the world. People are going to fiercely oppose it. So, the sign that Jesus is, is largely, Simeon's saying, or at least pervasively going to be rejected. Mary, in other words, should brace herself. And he speaks in verse 35. And this is also a tender scene for all of its ferocity. He speaks in verse 35 directly to Mary, and he speaks to her coming maternal sorrow. And he says to her, a sword will pierce through your own soul too. Now just imagine a young mother with her son in her arms. And here's the aged prophet in the temple. And he turns to her and says, a sword will pierce through your own soul. In other words, you will be wounded, Mary, by this child. And you will endure what no mother should have to endure. 
Not only will you have to live with this dark prophecy for three decades. Remember, this is not going to happen tomorrow. This is going to hang over your life, what I say to you now, Mary, for 30 years. You're going to have to live with this shadow for three decades as you raise your son. And then you're going to watch the gathering storm when his ministry starts. And then you're going to see the violence. And then you're going to be at the foot of the cross. And we don't have time, but I wish I could describe a Roman execution for you at the cross. One of the most gruesome things imaginable. Reserved for insurrectionists and slaves and non-Roman citizens and criminals. You'll be there. You'll watch this with John when all the rest have fled. And it will tear you apart because you will see him torn. Merry Christmas, Mary. Simeon doesn't actually say that. But it is a part, and it's an integral part, of the message of good Christmas cheer and consolation. And this is all, the text says, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. In other words, Jesus comes to kind of get into our mess, into... This is no mild light. The light is going to shine in the darkness. The darkness is going to resist it. It's not going to be able to comprehend it. And the reaction is going to be, at least in the near term, an unspeakable horror. Mary is an extraordinarily brave and courageous figure in the Gospels. This is a text that reminds us then that we need to come to this light. There will be some that will run away from this light, but you need to come to it. We need to allow this light to bear our deepest stains, our failures, to expose the thoughts of our hearts that we might be broken before this light and cling to this light and rise with Christ. Christ does only two things for people. He's appointed for the falling and the rising. We want to rise. Christmas is joy. It is light to those who don't stumble over the sign, but who believe the gospel and follow the Son of Mary. So, are these wonderful texts? Yes, they're wonderful texts, but we ought not to knock the bracing sharp edges off them. Because the consolation of the gospel, the light of the gospel, the joy of the incarnation is mysteriously only fully experienced in the shadow of the cross. Let us be faithful disciples. Amen.